Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Where's that sound coming from? What sound was that? Listen. Jay talking. Jay talking. Jay talking. I want to hear my. Jay talking. Jay talking. I want to hear my Jay talking. I want to call up now. Jay talking with Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. BZ, you're Jay talking. We're live midnight to five. Was Sunday an important day in your life? Talking about a historical event. Maybe you weren't even aware of it. How about the tea party? Robert Bob Allison is here to talk about that and more historically. Professor and Chair, Department of History, Suffolk University, and USS Constitution Museum Board of Trustees member and leader of a group called Rev250. And Rev250 coordinates historic sites and events in an effort to celebrate the events that ramp up to the revolution. So thanks for coming in again. Well, thanks for having me, Brad. You've been here now, this is the third time? I think so, yes. Well, it's excellent to have you here. And uh, the timing is great. By the way, you do have a book on the Boston Tea Party. Yes. How? Um, what angle does it take? How deep? Well, it does really, it get? just tells the story of the Tea Party. It was meant for general readers who are interested in what happened, and so it does tell the story of what happened. But to understand what happened, you have to understand why and who was involved. And you know, probably in third grade, fifth grade, we might have heard the story of the Tea Party, which was actually. Probably the most important event that led to the American Revolution. We have some real details too, folks. If you're a history person, you're going to love the details. You might want to get a pen so you can, a pencil so you can impress your friends. We're even going to tell you what kind of tea we were on, on on the ships. How many ships? You ready? Here we go. So uh, let's start with the events that lead up: the Stamp Act, the Townsend Act, the massacre. Yeah. That's all the background. Okay. And what happens in May of 1773 is Parliament passes the Tea Act. The last thing they were thinking about was Massachusetts. They were thinking about India. India was the most important place to members of Parliament because India, remember India, China, to get the wealth of of India and China is the reason the European countries started sailing out of Europe to get to the real riches of India. And by the 1770s, the British East India Company had taken over much of India and where they were governing India. These accountants went over and local Rajas said, okay, you can take over raising tax, uh, collecting taxes and so on, and I can just be a local Raj. And this worked out very well for the East India Company. And by some, some didn't go along, and so the East India Company wound up going to war against them. So you have accountants going from England to India, leading armies against other places in India. And by the 1770s, they've taken over much of India. But they're really, they're almost bankrupt because of this. Taking over India is an expensive thing. And what they were doing in India is getting goods from India, shipping them to China, trading for tea, and then shipping the tea back to England 
and to North America. In the 18th century, the people in England really took to drinking tea. Coffee had been their preferred drink before, now they're drinking tea. The I didn't realize they drank coffee first. Oh, they did. Yeah, it came from Arabia. Remember the, the Crusades, which is probably a subject for another day, yeah. had introduced them to coffee. And now tea catches on in England in the 1770, in the, in the 18th century. And tea is really a social thing. You know, we would get together in the afternoon. The English still have tea, uh, what we would call supper. How much tea did the average English person drink Every annually. person in England, every man, woman, and child drank a cup a day, so 300 cups a year. And that's, you know, some people probably didn't drink at all. So so some people are drinking three cups. That's right, yeah, yeah. And, and usually you would sit around with friends drinking tea and gossiping and talking about other things. So it's a social thing. And the English drank a higher grade of tea. The Americans, tea had not caught on quite as much in America. The average American drank 120 cups a year. So... You know, probably maybe two twice a week you may have a cup of tea. Uh, so you have tea really catching on as this social thing. And the English are shipping other things to China, trying to find things the Chinese want to buy, which is difficult. But they are sending stuff from India. Ultimately, what they're going to do is send opium to China. And that's, again, another story for another day. Here we're talking about the East India Company on the verge of bankruptcy, they go to Parliament to get bailed out, and the Prime Minister, Lord North, realizes this company is too big to fail. He has to give them a bailout, but he'll give them 15 million pounds, but he will get to appoint the board of directors for the company. Is so, that a loan or a gift? It's a loan, but it's really going to help because now he's appointed members of the board of directors. Yeah. Parliament essentially now owns, owns the company. And so the company is uh, on its feet, but also to help it get back on its feet, we'll let them ship tea directly to North America. They will have a monopoly on all tea sold in North America. So if you're a merchant in Boston and you had been selling tea that you've gotten from the Dutch or the French, you've been smuggling tea, no, you can only sell tea now if you're one of the consignees of the East India Company. And there are five guys in Boston chosen to sell tea. Richard Clark, whose family are the largest tea merchants in uh, New England. And Clark's brother-in-law is Thomas Hutchinson. Or is actually Peter Oliver, whose brother-in-law is Thomas Hutchinson, the Figures. governor. Yeah. Things and, never change. And you know, Hutchinson's two sons are among the other consignees. And another guy named uh, Edward Winslow. He and He's in a partnership with ben, um, Benjamin Faneuil, uh, the nephew of Peter Faneuil. That's interesting. The Hutchinson family had an interest in not having a war because that's bad for business. It would be bad for business. And, you know, Hutchinson, the Hutchinsons are real proponents of Massachusetts. Thomas Hutchinson's writing a history of Massachusetts. He's a lieutenant. He's actually now the governor. And his sons are in the tea business. And one of his brothers-in-law is uh, Peter Oliver, who is the chief justice. And then, actually, Hutchinson's two sons have married Andrew Oliver's daughters. Andrew Oliver is Peter Oliver's uh, daughter. Didn't know we were going to take this genealogical turn, but it's important to the story. Because if you're not a Hutchinson or an Oliver, you may have this perception that the Hutchinsons and the Olivers are trying to control everything. So anyway, the Clarks get, are going to get a consignment of tea. So is Winslow, so is Faneuil. And so are um, the Hutchinson boys. So if Hutchinson et al. get 
the uh, Monopoly on T, guys like John Hancock get burned, right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe Han- not Hancock. Maybe he wasn't a T guy, but yeah. people like him. Yeah, yeah. And then there are other merchants like um, John Rowe is a merchant. He owns ships. And that, in fact, what happens then is the company is given permission to send T on ships. There are a number of ships waiting in England to pick up cargoes. And there, at a certain point, the company is told, okay, you can now send your tea to North America. And there's a huge ship going to Philadelphia, another huge ship going to New York, and another one going to Charlestown, South Carolina. And then there are three relatively small ships headed for Boston. And the company gets to commandeer space on these ships. So the four ships going to Boston are going to carry, all told, about 400 crates of tea. One of them doesn't get here. So the three that do are the Eleanor, the Dartmouth, and the Beaver. The William is the one that runs aground on Cape Cod in a big storm. And when news of the Tea Act reaches North America, the merchants in Philadelphia, they are the first ones to act. They draw up a protest. They know they've been put out of business by the East India Company. And they want all of the merchants in North America to agree not to sell the tea. And they're not going to receive any of the tea in Philadelphia. They want the ships just to turn around and go home. And they want all of the other merchants in North America to agree to this. They suspect that in Boston, these people, even the ones like Hancock or against the company, are going to make a deal. That they are going to try to get a piece of the action. So the Philadelphia merchants are trying to pressure other merchants to do something to prevent the tea from landing. Huh. Similar thing happens in New York. In New York... And by the way, in Philadelphia, they also forced the people who had agreed to receive the tea to resign, say, we're not going to accept any tea. And that's a great victory. In New York, it's a little bit different, but there the consignees also agree, we're not going to accept any tea. However, the governor in New York, a guy named Tryon, says, well, I'll take the tea, I'll put it in storage, and we'll sell it because it's perfectly legitimate for the East India Company to award a contract, a monopoly, um, and have, be able to sell tea in North America. Here in Boston, immediately they start telling the, mer- the town and the uh, radicals start telling the merchants, you'd better resign, and the merchants say, no, we're not going to resign. You can't force us not to sell tea. Richard Clark and his family are at home, and a mob surrounds the house, tears the shing- shingles off the house, tears the shutters off the house, and someone fires a gun out of the second-floor window. The crowd disperses. Uh, uh, Clark is asked if he wants to come to a meeting at the Liberty Tree. He doesn't go to the meeting, but he and his friends go to his uh, shop down on Long Wharf, and they're in the counting room, a secure room, and the folks who had gathered at the Liberty Tree to meet with him come down to his warehouse, and they try to break into the counting room. They can't do it. They're able to break through the front door and break the windows. They can't get into the counting room. But Clark and his family are really terrified by this because they have the mob attacking them. And he goes to the governor and says, why don't you take the tea and take it under your protection? And the governor says, well, I have to ask the council. Members of the council say, no, we don't want to have anything to do with the tea. It's really Clark's problem. So Clark winds up taking refuge on Castle Island in the fort there. And the um, Hutchinson, one of the Hutchinson sons is married to a girl from Plymouth. And the town declares these people to be outlaws. They haven't resigned their commission as tea merchants. They are outlaws. And um, young Hutchinson and his wife, who's about eight months pregnant, go down to Plymouth. 
And this is all happening November and December, and there's a big snowstorm. He and his wife arrive in Plymouth, and they're staying at his in-law's house down there. The Plymouth Sons of Liberty come to call on him and say, what are you doing here? You're an outlaw. We don't want you in Plymouth. He says, well, can we stay overnight? Because it's about 10 o'clock at night. Yeah. And he said, my wife's pregnant. They say, okay, you can spend the night, but make sure you're gone by tomorrow morning. They come back at 6 o'clock the next morning to ask him why they're still hanging around. Wow. So these guys are really driven out of town. They, he, they also wind up going out to Castle Island and ultimately— So they came back up here and then they went came, to Castle yeah, Island? Castle Island, yeah. That, that's uh, under the protection of—there's some British troops there uh -huh. and some ships, British warships in the harbor— so that's a secure place. If they're here, you know, they're going to be subject to the mob rule of the town. Where we're at in the story is the T-ships have not arrived at the Eleanor and the Beaver and the Dartmouth, Dartmouth have yeah. not arrived yet. And the Clark family who have, some of the Clark family who have been granted the right to sell the stuff are being hounded. Yeah. And yeah. pretty soon the ships are going to get here, so that's take right. it away. Yeah, once the ships get here, the clock starts ticking. You know, had they first reached New York or Philadelphia, the story would have been different because there the consignees already had resigned. So it's unclear what would have happened. Philadelphia, probably would have, the ships probably would have just turned back and left. Here in Boston, though, the, it's unclear what will happen because the Clarks at all haven't resigned. They said, well, we don't have the power to, that we were, this is just a consignment being sent to us. And it happens that the first ship arrived here in late November. And then the clock starts ticking. And this is a technical thing. Under English law, a ship can be in port for 20 days without unloading, and it doesn't have to pay a tax on its cargo, and it can sail. After that, the ship has to be unloaded, and the taxes have to be paid. So everyone knows this, 20 days. So it arrives, I think, the 27th of November, which means the ship, by December the 17th, has to either have sailed, or if it is still here, it has to unload and the tax has to be paid. And so what happens when the first ship, and I think it was the Eleanor that arrived first, and I could be wrong on that. You're looking at the book now to see. Um, the town meeting assembles at Faneuil Hall, and they have a guard put on the ship. Initially, the ship was tied up behind a British warship in the harbor off Rose Wharf, John Rowe, who owns the wharf, says, oh, don't keep it off my wharf. How about sending it to Griffin's wharf? He's afraid someone's going to damage his wharf. Yep. And so they do tie it up at Griffin's wharf, and the town assigns 25 guys to watch the ship, make sure nothing gets uh, taken off the ship. And we know by December the 17th, it has to either have unloaded or have sailed. And then the Eleanor and the Beaver also arrive, and the town also puts guards over these ships. And then the town starts having meetings. And it's not just a town meeting. It's a meeting of the body of the people. So anyone can go to these meetings. And the meetings get so big, they can't have them in Faneuil Hall, which only holds a few, maybe a 1,000 people. They have to have them at the Old South Meeting House, which is the largest building in town. And thousands of people are coming to these meetings. This is in December of 1773. And they're hearing harangues from Samuel Adams and others about we can't let the tea be unloaded because then we will have paid the tax and the company will own us. Thousands like seven, eight, nine thousand, fifteen thousand? About five thousand. Five, you know, the population of Boston is about fifteen thousand. Yeah, which but is we, one third of the 
yeah, entire population. It's extraordinary. And people are coming from other towns, too. And we have town meetings in Dorchester, Roxbury meeting and saying, we're not going to let any of the tea be unloaded. We're not going to sell any tea here. We're not going to allow any tea to be shipped through our towns. And in Plymouth, a group actually, a, a group comes out in support of receiving the tea. And then the town meeting convenes and forces this group to retract. And a group of merchants get together and say, who are the Sons of Liberty to tell us what we can and cannot sell? And the first thing the meeting of the body of the people does is ask all the merchants in town, assemble over there, tell us who wrote this protest of the merchants. And they all say, we have nothing to do with the protest of the merchants. We think the Sons of Liberty should be able to tell us what we can. Were they afraid of the Sons of Liberty? Oh, they were petrified because okay. the Sons of Liberty are going to, they'll tar and feather people. Yeah. They'll just, they're the ones who had destroyed or tried to destroy Clark's house. And back in 1765, they had destroyed Thomas Hutchinson's house and um, Peter Oliver's warehouse on Long, or Andrew Oliver's warehouse on Long Wharf. So the Sons of Liberty can do real violence in the, in the town, and there's no real check on them. So, yeah, you would be intimidated by the Sons of Liberty if you were a tea merchant like the Clarks. It takes a great deal of fortitude to stand up to the mob, and the mob could argue that we're, if we give in to mob rule, no one will be safe, and people like Samuel Adams. It's a tough thing for Samuel Adams, John Adams, uh, Josiah Quincy, to counter that argument. But the argument is, if we give in to Parliament, we have no rights. If we allow Parliament and the East India Company to govern us, we've lost all rights. So it's a very difficult time here in December of 1773. And we know the ships have to either have unloaded or sailed by the 17th. So everybody in town knows something's going to happen. Something is going to happen. High we tension. don't know what. Everybody. Are the ships just going to sail? And here yeah. are the owners of the ships. Uh, John, Ro John Roach, Joseph Roach from uh, New Bedford is one of the ship owners. And he didn't want the tea. He, though, has had the ship come across the ocean with a cargo that he wants to unload and sell. He has other things on the ship. One of the things on his ship, actually, are streetlights. Uh, John Rowe, a merchant in town, has led a committee to bring streetlights to Boston. Another thing that's on the Dartmouth is a couple of boxes of the books of Phyllis Wheatley. Phyllis Wheatley, poet, has gone to England, published two, a book of poetry, which is now coming back on this ship. So the ships have these things as well as the tea. And the town says, we don't want the tea unloaded. We just want it to sail back. And Roach says, well, wait a minute. It's cost me to bring the ship here. It's going to cost me again to send it back. The company's not going to pay me anything. I'm going to be out seven, 20, seven, between seven and $17,000, the cost of transport, bringing the ship across the ocean. How come I'm the one who's paying for this? Yeah. And at one of the town meetings, uh, Josiah Quincy, who's one of the leading patriots, says, you know, Mr. Roach has a point here. Why, we should take up a collection to defray the cost. And he says, I pledge five, uh, 50 guineas, which is quite a lot of money. Yeah. And someone says to Quincy, you talk really well, Mr. Quincy, but you don't show us your money, implying that maybe Roach put up the money so that Quincy then can really? lead a GoFundMe uh -huh. campaign okay. to pay off Roach and Quincy's outrage being accused of bribery and... They don't take up a collection for Roach. And John Rowe, the uh, Boston merchant who owns one of the wharves and he owns one of the ships 
And he says at one of the meetings as they're talking, what's going to happen to the- Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The tea. The governor won't let the ship sail. He says, I wonder how the tea would mix with salt water. So we know by December 17th, the ships either have to have sailed or unloaded. And the town is having these huge meetings of the body of the people asking the consignees to come in and talk to them, and they refuse. Of course, they're not fools. They are going to stay home or stay in Castle Island. And so we know that December 16th is the day. Huge meeting, 5,000 people in Old South. Actually, it's a rainy day, just like today, kind of a cold, rainy day. People have come in from surrounding towns to be part of this, not knowing what is going to happen. And we have a lot of detail about what was happening at Old South. Someone's taking minutes of the meeting. But what we don't have details on is what's happening at three other places around town. At Crane's Paper Shop, Stationery Shop, just off of the Common. At the Green Dragon Tavern on Hanover Street. And at Eads and Gill's Printing Shop on Queen Street, what's now Court Street. In the upper room of Eads and Gills is where the Loyal Nine meets. This is a group that really does a lot of secret planning of what becomes the revolution. The Green Dragon Tavern is where the Masons meet, St. Andrew's Lodge, a Masonic Lodge. In fact, the minutes of St. Andrew's Lodge for the night of December 16th, their regular Thursday night meeting, says no quorum, no meeting. But we know that the Masons were involved in this. We also know the stationery shop and these guys— leave from each place and stream down to Old South as this meeting is happening. And Joseph Roach has gone off to meet with Governor Hutchinson. Will he let the ship sail? And Hutchinson says, no, he can't let the ship sail. Roach comes back to the meeting house and tells them this. And Samuel Adams stands up and says, this meeting can do nothing more to save the country, which seems to have been a signal. From one of the galleries, there's a war hoop. And then from out in the street, these guys who have now converged outside, there's a war hoop. And these guys have disguised themselves as Indians. They've smeared their faces with soot. They've thrown blankets over themselves, mainly so they won't be recognized. And they then start heading down to Griffin's Wharf. Does everyone follow them? Yeah, the crowd starts leaving the meeting house, following them. But some people, like Joseph Warren... Thomas Young, Samuel Adams, stay in the meeting house. Giving Tom, uh, Dr. Thomas Young gives a speech. They stay there so that the minutes will show Samuel Adams, Joseph Warren, John Hancock, all in the meeting house. While the crowd, 100, 100 or so guys, are heading down to Griffin's Wharf, and people follow them. And they go aboard the ships. They ask each captain or master of the ship to show them their manifest. And one guy says... You know, my ship still has a cargo on top of the T. So do the other ships first and then come back to mine. They say, no, we'll take care of unloading the other cargo. So some guys go below decks and the others on the decks using the, the tackles to hoist the cargo up. They unload the other cargo and put it on the wharf. You know, and then they set out raising up these chests of tea, 300 some odd chests and people on the deck with hat, hatchets, 
break them open, and dump the tea and the chests overboard. And this takes about an hour and a half, two hours to do, and they're working very methodically and very quietly. People observe. Even uh, Admiral Montague, the commander of the British fleet in the harbor, notices how quietly, efficiently, and peacefully they're going about their business. It's important to note that the British don't do anything about it. That's right. They don't. They don't try to interfere with this. It's not the British government's tea. It's the tea of the East India Company, and they don't want to provoke a bigger riot. And as the chests of tea and piles of tea start piling up next to the ships, they send boys overboard to start breaking up the boxes. And as the tide starts coming in, it's a calm night. These islands of tea start rising on the water, and they send guys out in boats to push the tea under the water because they don't want anyone to take the tea home. They don't want anyone to say, these guys are really just stealing the tea. Right. In fact, they wanted they, to make it unusable. Exactly. They see one guy, a fellow named O'Connor, who has cut the um, pockets out of his coat, and he's going around pretending to throw the tea overboard, but he's actually putting it into the pockets, filling up the lining of his coat. Someone sees him, grabs his collar, and tries to pull his coat off, which he does. He's actually trying to pull O'Connor back so that they can get him. O'Connor wriggles out of the coat, and they're left with his coat filled with tea. They cut the lining out and dump the tea overboard. Then they nail his coat to the whipping post in Charlestown. If he wants to get it, that's where it will be. They're destroying Did this Did they team. do anything to him? I'm just curious. No, he never he never okay. surfaces again. So okay. we don't know what happens to O'Connor. Tough times. It does, tough times. Some people get home and they do find tea in their boots. So there are a few vials of tea around at Old South, at the Old State House, at the Mass Historical Society. Have real tea from the tea jar- party? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's you can be sure that it's real? Well, someone collected it, and they have a little label that was written at the time saying this is from the Tea Party. There was a guy in Dorchester named Withington who goes out to Dorchester Neck, what's now South Boston, the next day. And this tea had floated across the harbor and wound up in the marshes, and he collects it. And he brings home about half a chest of tea that he's going to sell to his neighbors. The Sons of Liberty call on him. And they take the tea and they burn it. They have a bonfire in Dorchester. Similar thing happens in early January. Some Boston merchants try to send tea out to uh, Medford by way of Charlestown. The Char- a Charlestown committee stops it, seizes the barrels of tea. They have a bonfire because they're destroying the tea. They want to show we're not going to accept any of it. And so they destroyed the tea on the night of December 16th. And then they want to show we're not going to buy any tea at all. They've agreed not to buy any. Even if uh, someone has smuggled tea, they're not going to be able to sell it because you'd have to prove this is smuggled. And how do you prove something is smuggled? Right. Huh. Well, then what, what happened that night? Were there consequences right away? Or did you have to wait until the king sent back the consequences? You know, what happens the next day, Governor Hutchinson wants to find the ringleaders and arrest them for high treason, but no one knows anyone who was there. They're all in disguise. And one reason they're so quiet is they don't talk to each other, so no one can recognize your voice. Yeah, I remember you were there because I heard you saying Yeah. And this is another reason they dress as Indians and they make gestures and they grunt and do other things so that no one will be able to recognize anyone who was there. So no one knows who was there. Right. No one can be arrested. John Adams said that this was the most sublime movement of all, this rising of the people. And he called this an epic. Hutchinson also knows this is the most outrageous thing they have done. And word gets to London in early January and Parliament doesn't say, oh, great. 
Uh, we love acts of civil disobedience. <laughs> right. Parliament says we're going to shut down the port of Boston until the tea is paid for. We're going to suspend the government of Massachusetts. No more town meetings. And also they take, for good measure, they fire Benjamin Franklin, who was the postmaster general for the colonies. They strip him of any positions he has because they really blame him as the grand instigator of all this. Now, meanwhile, on, the night, on December the 17th, Paul Revere uh, takes off for New York with a printed account of what had happened, goes to New York where it is printed then by the end, by um, Monday, which would have been about the 20th, 19th or 20th. And then another messenger takes news to Philadelphia, and it reaches Philadelphia on Christmas Eve, printed up. And so this is the news in Philadelphia. It's actually a Christmas box to the people of Philadelphia, telling them that in Boston they've destroyed three cargoes of tea. And it happens that the day after Christmas, the ship Nancy arrives in Philadelphia filled with tea in the Delaware River. And now Philadelphia had said, we're not going to receive any of the tea. Now they've had Boston confirming, this is what you do with the tea. You don't let it land. And so they have the captain of the Nancy and the master of the cargo come into Philadelphia. This is the day after Christmas. And there are 8,000 people who've gathered in front of the state house in Philadelphia. And they tell him, you have to go back. You can't let any of the tea land. He says, well, I don't have enough food or water to get back to England. The town, the city of Philadelphia provides food and water. They shuttle it out to the ship so the ship can turn around and leave. They're not receiving any tea here. Now, in April, two cargoes of tea arrive in Chesapeake Bay, and the owner of the ship is terrified. People will think, I'm on the side of the East India Company. So as a way of showing, I'm not on the side of the East India Company. I'm not actually letting any tea land. He sets his ship on fire in yeah. Annapolis. That's certainly a, um, you know, a, a gesture of goodwill. So, yeah, it's a bold <laughs> gesture of goodwill, yeah. Well, well, that's interesting. Couldn't he have just thrown the tea and whatever? He chose to set his ship on fire. That's right. People can see it being set on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and so, as I said, Parliament's shutting down the Port of Boston, suspending the government, and really punishing Massachusetts for this. And Massachusetts might have thought, you know, well, the, Massachusetts wants to make sure or try to get the other colonies on their side. And you can think if you're in Philadelphia or you're in New York, surprisingly enough, a lot of people don't like folks from Massachusetts. They thought they were a bunch of religious fanatics. They thought they were kind of obnoxious, overbearing. And maybe this and time— they still they, are. Well, so to some degree, they still are, yeah. Um, you said it. And they are, don't know how the other colonies will react. Will they say, yeah, they shut down Boston. We don't want them to shut down New York or Charlestown or Philadelphia— and so Massachusetts does ask for a Congress, a meeting of the other colonies to happen in Philadelphia in September to come up with some common um, area of resistance, common cause they can make with the other colonies. So this is really the beginning of the colonies uniting in reaction to this, not to the Tea Party, but to the British government suspending the government of Massachusetts. And these guys from um, Massachusetts, Samuel Adams, John Adams, John Hancock, set out for Philadelphia, unsure of how the other colonies are going to react. Will they say, boy, you've brought this on yourselves? Or will they say, no, we can't let the British government suspend the government of Massachusetts because then that puts all of us in peril? Isn't all this what the Sons of Liberty would want? I mean, they really want to foment unrest. They want a rebellion— 
and nothing. They do. This is likely to cause a rebellion. It is like, it, well, it is rebellion. And, but it's unclear if people are going to go along with the rebellion. And, you know, John Adams discovers this in the summer of 1774. As he's preparing to go to this Congress, he's also practicing law and he's trying cases. He's riding circuit up in Maine. Maine's still part of Massachusetts. And one hot day in August, he had spent the day in the saddle going from one court to another. And all he can think about all day as he's heading for the inn is, I hope I can get to an inn where I can get a cup of tea. And he gets to the inn and he says to the landlady, is it possible for a weary traveler to refresh himself with a cup of honestly smuggled, non-taxed nice tea? tea? And she says, we don't serve tea here. And she gestures to her husband, says, he'll make you coffee. Interesting. Now, you really have great detail. All right. As, is there anything else? Like, how do we tail off on the, the Boston Tea Party before you get into other revolutionary things? Like, how do you wrap this up? Well, I think this does stand on its own. By the way, no one called it the Tea Party at the time. They called it the destruction of the tea. Okay. And afterward, after the revolution, people did start writing down names of people who were there. And the lists we have are not 100% accurate. And there are, and, and, and actually in the past month, the um, Tea Party Ships and Museum has started marking the graves of people known to have been at the Tea Party. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. There are about 100 or so in Boston. And then people actually throughout New England, there are even a couple in Chicago. And it's um, not the folks who are necessarily the leaders of the revolution. George Robert Twelves Hughes, who was a shoemaker, it's a great name, George Robert Twelves Hughes, and he was there, and he thought John Hancock was also there. It was very important to him to think that he and John Hancock were both splitting open casks of tea. I suspect Hancock wasn't there, but Hughes thought he was. But we know Hughes was there, and we know a few other people who were, and then the others who yeah, said, yes, I was there. Um, they weren't people from the higher echelons of society. They weren't people who had gone to Harvard. They were guys who knew how to unload a ship. They were beefy, strong guys with hatchets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I think if you and I were sent to unload a ship, um, it wouldn't take, it would take more than two hours. Yeah. Uh, they knew what they were doing. Yeah, they did. They did very much know what they were doing, and it is really a rising of these folks. It was really moving tonight to be at Old South for this wonderful meeting they reenact, and it's both reenactors in garb and then ordinary citizens who get to participate in this meeting of the body of the people, and you really feel as though you were there. And then we marched through the rain down to Griffin's Wharf uh, near the Intercontinental Hotel, where the Tea Party Ships and Museum does a re- every day people do reenact this, but this is a big thing. They have bleachers set up on the um, Fort Point Channel so you can watch as they go below. They dump the tea. And in fact, they've started asking people from around the country who have used or tea that's expired, that's stale, to send it in so people can donate their tea to be thrown overboard. I should say the East India Company also donates tea every year for this reenactment. But think about this, a cold, rainy night in December, and you had hundreds of people, both at Old South and then marching through the streets. There were some reenactors, but most of us were just ordinary citizens who were participating in this moment in history. It really is an essential moment. 
I want to go back to the original and try to make everyone understand how many people were there, given the fact that the population of Boston was only 15,000, which is half Fenway Park. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. That's the entire population of Boston. Not yeah. doesn't include the surrounding. Doesn't include Roxbury, Dorchester, and Charlestown. So yeah. At that meeting on that night, yeah. there were ten thousand people, five thousand inside, and like five thousand like outside. Yeah, outside trying to listen. Like Two thirds of the population of the city of Boston was out was there. This mobilization of people. Another thing to think about too. I mentioned the attack on the Clark's house. This violent attack, and I think the leaders of this realized if they kept using violence, things were going to backfire on them. They would lose popular support. So that's the last time they do anything physically against any of the consignees of tea. And the destruction of the tea itself is a great nonviolent protest. In fact, during the course on, on one of the ships, they had damaged a lock. And so while these guys are unloading the tea, someone goes to replace the lock. It's really, uh, it's what makes this such a resonant event for us is that they do this without hurting anyone. It's not a massacre. It's not an attack. They're just destroying the tea. It, it's interesting to note that they know, they knew that they couldn't be violent. Did the Sons of Liberty and Sam Adams, did they have any, um, anything happen in the past that they were using as a guide as far as nonviolence working and, no, and violence no, no, not that, working? It's, un, it's, un, it it's really unclear. And in fact, in January, there's a fellow named uh, John Malcolm who is a, he, he's a, he's a supporter of the East India Company and the customs establishment. And he's always in trouble. He's mouthing off. He's actually about to beat this kid who's been insulting him because Malcolm had apparently had been tarred and feathered up in Maine. And the Sons of Liberty find him attacking this kid who said, hey, you got tarred and feathered, and they tar and feather him again. And this is a horrible thing to have happen to you. You're stripped and hot tar is poured yeah. on you and then feathers, and then you're paraded around town. So it's not as though they never use nonviolence again. And in fact, in uh, two years, they're going to have a big war. But this particular event, yeah, they say, let's not do that. And again, they don't keep records of what they're doing because no, they know what they're doing is treasonous. And so... They're not going to write it down. So we pretty much got it all covered. I just want to make sure that everyone knows that there's this cool book that you have put together. Well, thank you. And other, there are other books on the Boston Tea Party. Sure. What is your particular angle or, you know, is it the well, straight My particular version? angle is to make this a story that you can understand. You can understand the significance of it. And it's not just what happened in Boston. It's really why this is important throughout the colonies and really throughout the world. How the tea is coming from China and... The East India Company, mm -hmm. largest corporation in the world. In fact, the book ends with back in India in 1930 when Mahatma Gandhi leads a march to the sea to gather salt. And uh, the British government had put a monopoly on salt, and Gandhi is thrown in jail. There's rioting around India, and finally they let Gandhi out, and he goes to negotiate with the British viceroy. And the viceroy serves him tea, and he asks if Mr. Gandhi would like sugar in his tea, and Gandhi says... I would not like sugar, but I would take some salt in the tea to remind us of others who have opposed the British Empire. The Boston Tea Party by Robert J. Allison. And thank you. Let's figure out another way, something else to, to get you on here soon because you're just the best. The Boston Tea Party, I'm sure you can get it at all the regular places. Wherever fine books are sold. Okay, thank you very much. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? 
In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.